Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So every lawyer knows that having a strong witness can make or break a case. If the witness is outstanding, and that means someone who's unbiased, who has a really strong reputation, record, they have a, um, uh, just the, the sense of truth about them, and they're clear in their testimony, it really can mean the difference between proof of guilt or innocence. And in that instance, life, imprisonment, or perhaps even death. A faithful witness establishes truth. So it's no wonder that the Apostle John uses the word witness 29 times in the gospel. In the second to last verse of this gospel, he writes this. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. You see it right there so clearly, the link between witness and truth. And he bookends this witness of another John, John the Baptist, here in verses 6 through 9. We're going to look at three things about John. First, the purpose of the witness, verses 6 through 7. Second, the character of the witness, verses 7 through 8. And third, witness to the true light, in verse 9. I'm also going to ask the guys to turn on the light for you so you can actually see clear, <laughs> because I know some of you are taking notes, so thank you. Um, the first is the purpose of the witness in verses six through seven. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. You know, when a witness is brought before the court for a trial, it's very important that the lawyer who is bringing forward that witness knows exactly where this witness has come from. What is their background? What's their sense of veracity? Were they a, a former drug dealer? Are there any conflicts of interest? Well, John begins with stating exactly where this witness is from. He wants you to know upfront that this is a reliable witness. And so he describes him this way. John was sent from God. There's no de denying his credibility. And we're going to look soon enough at his character. But John wants us to know how important the witness of John the Baptist is because without this good witness, there's no such thing as truth. And truth is important to understand, to know what we believe and why what we believe. Recently, the James Webb Telescope sent pictures from deep space to show us exactly what's out there in the universe, these stunning pictures. And without those pictures, we would have no idea what's out there. 
But these pictures sent back light years away from us in space show us things that we could never have known before. That is to say that the witness of the telescope shows us what is beautiful, what is astounding. And so too in this way, John the Baptist is like this telescope. And what he does is he telescopes Christ for us, the beauty of the Savior, the Messiah who is to come. In this way, John the Baptist's witness is to show us the beauty of the gospel and of Christ himself. But who was this John the Baptist? Who are we talking about? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 through 38 describes for us a witness like John. And this is what the writer says for us about someone like John. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These people and someone like John who went about with camel's hair and a leather belt eating locusts and honey, you have to ask the question, do you have to do that to be a reliable witness? One thing you know if you read scripture from the old to the new, you see that these men and women who went about as Hebrews describes in these very barren, difficult places is that they in some way represented a parable. Their lives were a living description of what it meant to live as someone who did not know God. And in the same way, John's very life was this parable. He was a man who lived in the desert. And deserts are very difficult, harsh environments to survive. It wasn't that long ago that Many of us were looking at our temperature gauges, and I did in my car, and it's at 117 degrees. I have no, I don't think it was accurate. I, I, I can't imagine it being 117. Maybe it was around 110 at least, right? Only a week ago? It's, it's really incredible to think about that. But when you think about 110 degrees, we can go into our houses and turn on our air conditions, and we have access to water and food. But the desert is not like that, not in biblical times. So when it's 110 and there's no shade, there's no access to water or food, you will die quickly. The desert is meant to symbolize a very harsh life. And in that sense, a life apart from God. It's the very reason why so many of the major events of the Bible describe the people of God in the desert. The Israelites were in the desert 40 years. It was to show symbolically what life without God is like, that you had to trust in God or else you could not survive. The prophets were often in the desert calling out for Israel to repent. Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert. Paul spends 13 years following his conversion in the desert. And here we see John the Baptist also in the desert testifying about Jesus. The desert wilderness is that one place that you cannot survive unless God is feeding you, giving you water and protecting you. And this is John's primary message. You need Jesus to live eternally as much as your body needs water to survive. And sometimes we have to be in this desert barely hanging on to finally come to a realization of this. 
Some of us have been in that place. If you are in Christ, I think you can recall what it felt like to be in the desert, meaning that there was a point where you were desperate for Christ. Somewhere where there's a brokenness, there's an emptiness, there's, as we see in John, a darkness. And only when there is full darkness can you appreciate light. And so the desert is that symbol, not just for John and for the Israelites, but for us as Christians, to say that until you see your desperate need for Christ, you will never turn to Christ. You will not understand how refreshing the living water that Christ gives to you is better than the dryness of your soul. Some of us have been in that place where we have turned to Christ in this way, surrendering our pride. And some of us need to be in that place today. If you have not been desperate enough for him, there will come that day. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but one day it will come. And you will see that the comforts of your house will not provide what you look for. Having a romantic relationship, having friendship, having all the success of our world will not supply what only Christ can quench, which is truly the, the desire of your soul. And so only when you see the desperation of the desert will you finally turn to the living water of Christ. And that's John's witness. That's why he tells the prophets and uh, um, the Pharisees and all the people listening to him, repent, turn from your ways, see that you need Christ. He points to Jesus so that we might believe through him. And if John's character is one you trust, then you will believe the one he witnesses about. And that's a big if though, do you trust his character? And that's where we get to verses seven through eight. The character of the witness matters much. John says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And verse eight says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. If the character of witness is bad, then anything he testifies to will be subject to skepticism. Some of you might recall this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, or you know it historically. It doesn't seem that long ago, but Secretary of State Colin Powell, he went before the United Nations and he presented what was thought of then to be indisputable evidence that the Iraqis and Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And so on that basis, the UN passed resolutions to send forth UN coalition forces into Iraq to go and weed out those weapons and then overturn Saddam Hussein. But I think most of us know the story. They, coalition forces go into Iraq, no evidence of these uh, weapons of mass destruction. And at the time, Colin Powell, for those of you who can recall, his reputation was really spotless. People of all, both sides of the aisle really respected him. But once he became the voice that was this picture of possible deception, regardless of a character, his reputation was never the same. So it has to be that the character of the witness, as well as the test of the record of what they're saying is true, both have to come together at the same time. For John, he needed both. He needed to have the character of the witness and 
the message that he was speaking needed to also be validated as well. And we see this taking place. Um, John had this character. When John's disciples, they were bothered that people were going to Jesus to be baptized. It wasn't Jesus the Baptist, it was John the Baptist. And so John has crowds coming to him to be baptized. And as people are no longer coming to John, but now they're moving over to Jesus, John's disciples are coming up to John and saying, John, aren't you bothered by this? And John says this in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. John was fully aware that he was not the Messiah. He was not the light. He was a witness to the light. And despite other people, even his own allies and supporters and disciples, they all wanted him to take on a greater role, to be the guy, the guy. You know, no one likes to be the backup. You don't want to be the backup quarterback. You want to be the starter. You, know, you don't want to be someone in the shadows. You want to be up front. And here John had every potential to be the person who was the man, where crowds were flocking to him. And yet here John says, I need to decrease. Jesus needs to increase. That's a really important statement for us as Christians today. For those of us who are in leadership, especially in, in a Christian context, it is far too easy to fall to the celebrity culture and thinking that it is my charisma, my articulation, my abilities, my intellect that causes people to turn to Christ. And that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of so many church leaders of very large ministries and even small churches who fall away from the Lord because they've believed this satanic deception that it's them, it's their power, their strength. And when you're writing books that are making New York Times bestseller lists, and you're speaking before thousands at conferences, and people are actually asking for your autograph, this is pastors, church leaders, and you're spending all your time on Twitter and Instagram to get followers. It makes following Jesus and making him greater and you lesser very difficult. But it's not just famous pastors that struggle with this. I mean, it, it runs so contrary to the ideas of this world. In our world, you want followers. In social media, you want more YouTube subscribers. To get more subscribers and a greater following means that you get a greater platform to speak truth. And isn't it interesting that we've connected popularity and numbers to automatically mean truth when clearly John is preaching a very different message. He's saying it's my character and it's the fact that I'm pointing to Christ and I want less people to follow me. Believe that, that is truth. So contrary to our world. Our world is get bigger numbers, have more popularity, have more subscribers, more followers, and then anything you say 
is actually going to be more powerful and more valid and therefore more true. That's contrary to the gospel and contrary to exactly who and what John is saying. It's truly a satanic deception. And again, it's not just famous people, it's all of us. If you've ever felt overlooked at work, you've been a significant part of a project at work, but you don't get the credit, someone else gets the credit. And suddenly that feeling of, what about me? What about my work? How come I'm not getting notoriety? How come I'm not getting the promotion? And you think to yourself, I deserve better than this. That sense, that feeling, know that that's the same as what we see in the garden and ever since. It's truly a satanic deception. The classmate who gets praised for her work. No student likes group projects. You know why? Because you know that you're the hard worker and there's three other people and there's always that one person who never pulls their weight and yet they get the same grade that you do. That's frustrating, isn't it? Students, I know you've been there. Some of you have been there. Or maybe you're that person. (laughs) If you're that person, come on, pull your weight. But if... If you've been that person, you know how that feels when everyone does poorly, but you did all this work and you still did poorly because someone didn't do their job. And now you got a low grade for that. That's a miserable feeling. When we have envy or jealousy, it just shows us how unlike John we are. We want to be greater and we don't care about Jesus being greater and us being lesser. Again, that is so contrary to the world's way, and yet that's exactly what John is like. John's character, it just stops us in our tracks. It makes us think, what is going on here? I don't understand this. He's, again, drawing large, huge crowds, but he's constantly talking about the one who's coming, and then how tempting it would be when the one comes and he's thinking, Do I really want people to follow him over me? I mean, that's that's gotta be really tempting for John. But that's exactly what he does. When you hear someone like me preaching, teaching about Christ and the gospel, I hope you're more drawn to Jesus than you are to the speaker or the preacher. John 5.35, Jesus describes John the Baptist this way. He was a burning and shining lamp. That's John 5.35. He was a burning and shining lamp. Do you know that, that lamps in Jesus' day, they required oil or animal fat to light, just like today it requires electricity. So lamps are a light, but Jesus is the light of the world. So Jesus doesn't need an external source to provide light. He himself is the light. A lamp needs an external source. And that John recognized that. He realized that it's not going to be from himself that provides light, the light of the gospel. It's going to be God using him and using him as an instrument and as a means. And so you need to be far more enamored by Jesus because of a message preached than the preacher. Forget about wit and articulation. And there are some 
preachers and teachers who are excellent in their delivery. Maybe they're handsome. They, they, they just exude holiness in a certain way. They know, they know how to make you laugh, and they can make, bring you to tears. But if you walk away just so struck with, wow, that man is truly gifted, and I just really am enamored by him, then you have not heard the gospel. It's dangerous, actually. Um, if you are more drawn to the preacher because of the preaching, then run away from that man and that church. Move far. I, I was uh, sharing how you know I have uh, now three children. All of them have are in different places, and they're looking for churches in the different places they're at. I've never actually looked for a church to attend as a church member myself <laughs> because I've been in ministry. I've gone from, and I've only been in three churches my whole life, really, essentially for a long period of time. So I don't know what some of you go through when you're looking for a church, but I do hear it from my children now. And as I listen to them, and I hear all the different factors of why they're choosing a church, I, I can't tell you how often I'm trying to emphasize to them, what are they preaching What's, what's being taught? And their thinking is, but I want community. You know, I want, I want friends. Well, friends, they only last for a short period of time. They do. It fades. It comes and goes. But the preaching of God's word, it's everything. It lasts forever. Forever. The word of the Lord stands forever. And so what you need to be drawn by is not by the preacher, but by the preaching, by the word of God by the gospel of Christ. It's what John was fixated on. And that's what caused him to be someone that Jesus said, there is no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. Because John cared so much about the message of the gospel, not his own popularity. In verse nine, we see that Jesus says, it's all about being the witness to the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What John witnesses is not just a light, but true light. This means that Jesus, as the true light, is the only genuine light. And this assumes, therefore, that there are many counterfeit lights. Because if there's a true light, that means there's false lights. And there are many false lights, so I've listed one of them, false teachers. Again, it's so important that when you hear the word of God and the gospel, that you can go back to the Bible as the source of truth and say, is actually this being said by the Bible? You have a, you have a mind, you can think logically and rationally, and so therefore you can correlate and corroborate what's being said here and what's being said in the word. And if there's a contradiction, then you question it. And that's why we give those little QR codes because you're always welcome questions and we will always answer them in front of you. Because we want you to look at scripture and say, is that true? Or is that just some experience or some thought, random thought that this person has? Why should I even follow that? Why should I trust that over the news or over some uh, article that's being written on the internet? So recognize that there are many false lights. In fact, Satan is described as the angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 14. So do not simply think that just because someone has 
articulation, insight, um, the ability to be able to move and affect my emotions, that that suddenly means it's true. No. We have to base what is true on God's word as the anchor by what we believe to be true. False preachers can be incredibly gifted, very much so, smart, articulate, culturally relevant. Um, people who point you to whatever's happening in culture, there's always a word to be said. And that might be fashionable, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. In Caesar's day, it was culturally relevant to say Caesar is Lord than to say Jesus is Lord. Actually, if you were to say Jesus is Lord in Caesar's day, you would be killed for it. So clearly, there is a real, real problem with saying that and thinking that way. And so we have to understand that being culturally relevant is not the answer. That's not truth. Jesus is none of these imposters. He is the true light. Everything else you think makes life better or more fulfilling, John is telling us, beware. It's a scam. And today there are more scams than ever before, many. True light also means that he is the source of light. Everything else is a reflection, a shadow. The moon, if you look at the moon, it doesn't produce any light at all. But if you look at the moon, it seems like it's producing light, but it doesn't. It's a giant mirror. And it's reflecting, as we know, the sun. But that mirror is a really beautiful mirror. Sometimes it's pink. Sometimes it's very large in the sky. Sometimes it's a, a fingernail size. Sometimes it, you can see the craters. You can see the little man on the moon. I mean, sometimes it is just, it's just so stunning, the moon. And there is all sorts of lore regarding the moon. There's wolfmen and, you know, it's just everything, story after story of the moon. And the moon gets a lot of attention. But the sun, it's sort of taken for granted. The sun, you can't actually look at the sun. You can stare at the moon and be amazed by it. But you cannot look at the sun at all. It'll burn your eyes out if you looked long enough. But without the sun, you cannot even see any bit of the moon. It would be non-existent. At least it would seem like that if there was no sun. The sun is so bright, so many benefits, but we can't even stare at it. We can't look at it. We take it for granted. And my friends, that's exactly what we do with Jesus. He is the source of any light that we have. If you breathe, it's because Jesus allows you to breathe. If we have fun, if we exercise, if we eat healthy, if we eat delicious foods, when you give birth to your first child, when you have romantic love, when you have a really wonderful time with some really good friends, when you finally get satisfaction at work, when you see shooting stars at Yosemite, if you enjoy a romantic evening with your spouse, all of these are wonderful blessings, but they are reflected lights. They are the moon. And to think 
that that is what gives you your greatest pleasure, you will be sorely disappointed. Because you can only get so much from a reflected light. The full power of the light comes from the S-O-N, not just the S-U-N. It, Jesus is the one who is the means by which we can even taste even an iota of any type of pleasure in all these things that we experience. And so if we are settling for, you know, just these small little tastes and neglecting the delight that we have in Christ, wow, we are ignoring the treasures that we have. Jesus came to be the true light of this world. And you're either going to believe in a sham or a reflection or a shadow, which God wants you to enjoy, but he's saying you will never enjoy it enough unless you know Christ. Pursue anything without Jesus is being more enamored if you're a man, you have a wife, by the dress of your wife than the person of your wife. Someone told me that as a child, they went to different European cities on vacation. And I asked permission for this story. <laughs> and as they walked about all over these historic cities, he, he was telling me this and he's like, oh, I regret it because when I was, went to Rome, went to Scotland, went to all these different places, to Germany, to France, to Paris. And he said he and his siblings, all they did the whole time was play Fruit Ninja. And, and they're, they're exploring different foods, architecture, art, history, everything. And they didn't care at all. It was all about Fruit Ninja. And now that he's older and he can appreciate and learning about it in history, he's saying, why didn't I appreciate it? I mean, that's, that's what it's like for us when we are appreciating or delighting in something in this world apart from Christ. We're playing Fruit Ninja while walking amongst the beauty of our world. I think all of us can understand this. I grew up in the East Coast and similar story and um, foliage was just astounding around this time, October, November. And my parents would take us for a drive. I hated the word drive as a kid because that meant we would go driving and we'd be looking at a bunch of leaves. That's what I saw it as. But now I'm older, I am an older person. I miss those leaves, those colors. You know, you, you just lose beauty when you're so subsumed with what you think is so important, fruit ninja. You know, like that's everything in the world. There's nothing better than that. And my friends, we hear that and you think, oh, that's a kid's story. No, that's our story. Jesus makes all things beautiful. You cannot understand beauty apart from him. You cannot. You will only see the smallest of tastes. You're looking at moons when you have the sun. And Christ gave his life for you so that you could enjoy everything, not just now, but eternally. And what John saw is he saw when he had the Temptation, I'm sure he was tempted to have these people come to him and to be popular. But he saw, I do not want to miss out on beauty. Having everything, 
you would not give up this temporary shadow for what will last eternally. He was witness to that and he's saying, I saw that. Do not miss out. Do not miss out on your life. Jesus shed his blood and took your place. He bore every crushing guilt and sorrow and sin that you have, not for your measly pleasure, but for your, as we saw last week, abundant life, for your utmost joy. He doesn't want you to miss out. He paid everything so that you could have everything. And that was John the Baptist's whole mission of life, to get people like us to see that to be true. And I hope you see that as well. Let's pray together. Father, I am afraid that people like me, maybe some here, have missed out on beauty because we have been so sucked in by these shams, these fishing schemes of our soul that tries to get us to buy into what seems like a real pleasure, but it's so temporary and fleeting, and it only leaves us empty and depressed and living in darkness. You want so much more for us, and you paid a dear price so that we could have life in the light of Christ. Thank you for John the Baptist, this man whose life was very difficult whose life ended so tragically. But I know one thing, he right now does not feel sorry for himself. Instead, he is living with the greatest possible delight that he could ever know. And he wants us to have that same eternal joy. For those who have placed their hope in you, Lord, help us to not fall into the shams that come each day, into the satanic deceptions that makes us think that what we have now is better than you. It is a lie. And for those who have never trusted in the name of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you convict hearts today? Help those who have never turned to you to see that they are not experiencing and enjoying and fellowshipping with the only true God and the hope of their life and of their world. Thank you for your son, Jesus, whose blood shed on his broken body we remember today to remind us once again that our hope lies in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.